I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Our guest today on What's Next, actually, it's a return guest, Wayne Brown from Willow Grove Counseling. Uh, Wayne, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, a pleasure having you. And it's also, although we had a, a nice thorough conversation the last time you were here, uh, we have a couple of other different elements to get into. One that's timely, New Year's resolutions, something yes. that uh, I guess I, I, the connection once it was brought to my attention is obvious that a counselor might be the perfect person to work your resolutions through because what happens normally with resolutions, either they're they're too big and we never make them, right? right? Or they're too small and not worthwhile. So let's just uh, give us a, just a general thought about New Year's resolutions. The big issue with New Year's resolutions is that they, the individual lacks the why. So The why. The why okay. of why I'm going to change this behavior because New Year's res- resolutions, famously, it's almost a punchline at how people struggle to keep their resolutions. Right. And in my experience, the more someone knows why they want to change a behavior, the more likely they are to have success in changing a behavior. So one of the big ones, uh, when I was younger and could go to the gym four or five times a week, January 2nd, you don't have access to any equipment because everything is filled. Mm -hmm. And usually by January 10th, the gym's about half filled, and by January 15th, it's back to standard practice because going from trying to lose weight, trying to get in shape to actually doing the tasks, eating more salads, eating less snacks, uh, going to the gym and doing cardio and getting sweaty and getting up early for work are all not fun things to do. But if I don't know why I want to lose weight, if I don't know why I want to make the change, it's not going to resonate. And the first time someone says, you know what, I'm just going to sleep in tonight, Hmm. this morning, and tomorrow I'll go, and then tomorrow afternoon I'll go too, it's over. Wow. Uh, With substance use, it's frequently alcohol-related or specific drug-related. People use their drugs. People get into substances, usually because they were having fun. And somewhere along the line, they stopped having fun. But something provided them that draw to use. And most typically, it's an individual who's trying to block out a memory, who's trying to block out a past thought that they haven't dealt with and are not yet willing to deal with or not willing or excited to talk to someone about. So they just numb the voice. They numb those internal thoughts, whatever they are. And we have the Super Bowl coming up in a month or 
We have the National Football Championship coming up in a month. And the number one advertiser consistently every year is alcohol. Certainly. Um, In Western New York, you can barely drive down a street in the city of Buffalo where you don't see a Kratom shop. Kratom, while it's not officially linked to opiates, it does have opiate-like qualities. So people who are trying to stop using heroin, they're trying to stop using pills, they're trying to stop use whatever, they look at that as a step down. And for some people, it is. Uh, we, we in the business refer to it as harm reduction. Right. So they're still taking chances. They're still doing things that might not be ideal, but hopefully it's lowering the risk of something awful happening. I want to explore that concept of why and helping somebody understand the why behind their New Year's resolution. Take us through that in the sense that I want to lose weight is, it sounds, right, it's it's healthy, you just want to look better, yada, yada. How often, though, when you maybe talk to somebody about what they they think was their incentive, it turns out to be nothing like that whatsoever? I cannot count the number of vacant expressions I get when I ask them, what is your why? And then I'll ask specifically, why are you looking to change this behavior? And more often than not, the response is, well, because I want to, which is great if you're five years old. Hmm. But as far as a reason to stop using a drug that stopping drinking alcohol is extraordinarily difficult. Stopping using heroin orally in by IV, whatever, is extraordinarily hard. We've seen how many doctors in Western New York have lost their license of practice from overprescribing opiates. These things are very difficult to manage because people's reason to use is louder than their reason not to use. Because if I'm trying to stop using heroin, Within three to six hours of my last dose, I'm going to feel like I have the world's worst flu. Mm. My muscles cramp. I'm dizzy. I have a horrible headache. And I know that all I have to do is take in one whatever they're using and the pain of withdrawal from the opiate goes away. So here I am saying, hey, let's do something that's going to cause you a lot of physical pain and a lot of emotional anguish and possibly require you to go into an inpatient or outpatient intensive uh, facility. And now you have to be away from your family. You have to be away from your job. You have to get permission from individuals, which means you need to have conversations that are not that comfortable to have. And it just becomes a, we'll worry about this tomorrow problem. But back to the, to the why then of, mm-hmm. of that scenario. The, I want to quit drugs yeah. because it's, it's 
killing me. It's controlling me. I don't want it. But is there more? What are you finding, though, in these sessions when it comes to that? Why that there is, is it more important to find out not so much why you want to quit or stop this behavior, but more about why you started it in the first place? We don't get into the trauma work until they're far more stabilized. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll dabble around the edges of why you use this, but to begin doing trauma work while someone is recently in sobriety is truly hazardous to mm. their safety from making a rash decision because I'm doing this work and maybe I'm on medicine that blocks the high, but you just reminded me of when my family member did this horrible thing and now I'm going to do everything possible to get rid of this feeling I'm having. So it's, you do get into the childhood issue. You do get into maybe the adult trauma, but not until the person is in a more stabilized place where they can have the conversation slowly and deliberately. Uh, working with people on their initial why for why they adjust to behavior is frequently someone they love is threatening their presence. That we will not, you will not be having access to your child. Uh, you will not be having access to your parent. We're going to do X, Y, and Z to cut you off until you can demonstrate so many months of sobriety. That's uh, some tough love, if you want to call it that. It is, and it can be extraordinarily triggering to relapse as well. I would think. Because... I mean, the fear. like yeah. When you said lose a child, mm -hmm. I mean, or lose access to your child, I mean, for I think every parent who's listening probably just right. shuddered at that thought. I shudder every time I have to have that conversation with someone that, hey... In order to maintain your family as you know it, we need to address these behaviors. Um, it's an incredibly sensitive conversation, and it takes patience. It takes the ability to be yelled at and really descriptive words used by the patient because they're hurting. And they take it out on the counselor. Absolutely. And if I have to choose between a individual in recovery taking it out on me or taking it out on their parole officer, I will take that bullet every time. Because if you can yell at me for 10 minutes and then when you sit with the PO and we've had a chance to review about what's going to happen next and what you're going to do and what is your why for wanting to quit, then you're going to have a more productive conversation with your PO or the court or wherever you are and likely be more successful. With, with severe addictions, the best thing that you can aim for is smallest accomplishments. So like one of the handouts that I have at my office is a handout that has one line at the top. I did this better today mm. because I want 
my clients when they're feeling that the cravings are too much, that they don't know if they can make it to tomorrow morning, that my friend just called and said, hey, I just scored X, Y, Z, let's go party, that they have their why on their refrigerator door, in their bathroom where they shave, wherever their trigger points are. How are how is this individual going to be reminded that this is what's important to me? Sometimes it's not my list. Sometimes it's a drawing from their child, a you know, a little crayon picture that will jar them back from disassociation. Cause for so many people who are in active use or in early recovery, they will check out of their bodies and turn off their brains in order to chase that high. When you're talking with an individual who is dealing with a substance abuse issue, and I know when it comes to being a counselor, listening is so key. Yet you're talking about scenarios where you might be talking to your parole officer today, tomorrow. You might have to go talk in front of a judge. How much do you have to move from that listener to being a little bit more of an instructor or pointing things out? Yeah, still listening the whole way. Still listening. And what we'll do- Even if you hear maybe what could be self-destructive behavior. If a client is vocalizing self-destructive behavior, the last thing that I want to do is tell them what to tell the judge to get custody of their kids back before they're ready. Hmm. So- in when I'm sitting in my office, I really the client is my number one, and sometimes the client isn't ready to have weekends with their kids yet. Mm. And it's my not only my responsibility, but it's my duty to be able to report this client is doing this, this, and what this well. Uh, I do have concerns about unrestricted custody. And then I would go on to explain. But the client's going to know what I say before I say it. Because if you and I are sitting down and I know that the PO is calling me tomorrow and you know the PO is calling me tomorrow and I say to you, everything is sunshine and roses. Everything is looking great. You should have your kids by this weekend. And then... I go around to tell the PO something that submarines their custody, they're never going to trust me again. They're never going to say another word to me. And I've lost all legitimacy. Hmm. So, it, <laughs> though, you're, though you're trained in this, right. I would think that takes a lot of, uh, uh, you got to, ca- I, I would think you'd have to catch yourself to a certain extent. That, they, they, that desire to want to, Set people straight. <laughs> I guess is it maybe a human trait? <laughs> I would love I would love when I'm working with someone who is in recovery for multiple times in the same year, I would love to sit with them and really let my id rage for me. But then I remember that they have a million people in their lives already who are already doing that. Mm, right. And the only way that they're going to vest with me is for me to be someone they trust. When I worked in an inpatient setting, 
I had many clients who were repeaters. And the first thing they would say when they got into our level of care was that they wanted to work with me. And some people absolutely didn't want to work with me for many of the same reasons, actually. Really? Because when you were working with me, we were going to be working on what needs to change. And not everyone who goes into a recovery program is willing to change. That's why I want to work with them on the why. Because if you don't know it, maybe we can suss it out together. Maybe we can have the conversation and come up with some just kernels of things that are important. And then once we have the kernel, then we can make that grow and we can make it more visual. If the person knew why they wanted to stop using drugs, they wouldn't be talking to me. They would have already quit. Right. It's quitting is absolutely the most difficult thing some of these people will ever do in their lives. And I never cease to have respect for the people who invest in their own recovery. Our guest on What's Next is Wayne Brown from Willow Grove Counseling, uh, kind of meshing together uh, New Year's resolutions with uh, trying to help people uh, overcome substance abuse issues. How, and I'll, you'll know this before I even have to answer or ask it, but uh, you know, I most certainly want to be conscientious of mm-hmm. your privacy issues with your clients for sure. At the same time, these, these conversations where you're listening and trying to help guide somebody, help them find themselves, however you want to describe it. What are you seeing along these pathways? And I know we're being, this is, you know, you've dealt with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And so there's probably hundreds and hundreds of stories, but inside those, what can you tell us that's instructive? The things that you're finding inside these people and what they're finding inside themselves. Over my career, I've, dealt with countless thousands of people in different points of recovery. Um, there's the, if I were to extract a theme as broadly as possible, it would be the desire to be able to be present with today. Hmm. It would be the ability to reminisce about their childhood without disassociating because there's a painful memory back there that has not been addressed. Um, It's everyone has their own story and everyone's story is the most important to them. So if you're there for the story, if you're actively and meaningfully listening without judgment and without condemnation, you're going to build trust. You're going to build an interpersonal connection. And the client might even consider, I don't want my counselor to be disappointed in me, so I'm not going to use. Now that is not, and I repeat, that is not something that I would hold over their heads in session, that would be incredibly irresponsible. Right. But but you know what happens. The the client develops a emotional connection to the counselor, especially 
if they don't feel that they've had anyone in their lives who's been as actively supporting them. So I come along and I'm what feels like their best friend because all their other friends are bringing them dope. They draw a closeness. You come across one of these perhaps childhood issues Mm -hmm. that they want to disassociate themselves from. Maybe in your mind, you think you're on, I'll Mm -hmm. let you tell me if you thought you were onto something important there. If a person has been disassociating a childhood memory for a long time, they're not necessarily ready to bring it up at a moment's Mm -hmm. notice by any means. How do you, how do you work through that probably I would, again, think of it be a natural inclination to want to get back to that, yet knowing that maybe your client, your patient doesn't want to talk about this. Any counselor who really, who does serious trauma work knows that before you're doing trauma work, you're doing safety work. And above everything, you need to make sure that the client is safe and has a boatload of coping skills to manage. And we will actually practice them in session. And I will give them assignments of practicing these coping skills, especially during the week between sessions when they're not stressed, to which the usual response from a client is, why on earth am I going to practice this coping skill when... I'm just chilling on the couch and not feeling anything. Won't that make me want to use? And I'll say if the act of practicing is triggering the desire to use, then you're not chilling, number one. And number two, the parallel I will bring in is we live in Buffalo and there are multiple sports organizations. And I'll remind them, whatever their sports team of choice they practice in between each game. And the client will usually get it as soon as I go there, but Mm. if they don't, then I'll progress the conversation and say, why do you think they practice in between games? They already know what they're doing. And eventually I evoke the answer or work with them to discover the answer that we practice the skills when we're not at risk because then when the skills aren't going as planned, that we can figure out other strategies. It's interesting how you termed it as the concern for safety is paramount. Is that something from the outside looking in that is totally lost on the counseling substance abuse relationship, that safety issue that, you know, I hope that all counselors are working on safety first. No, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you know, because, Mm -hmm. You know, so much of these conversations are, what do we? does the public need to understand about this? What do family members need to understand about what their loved one is going through? And maybe something that doesn't talk, get talked about is safety has to come first. Yes, 100% safety has to come first. Uh, there used to be this old 70s, 80s idea of doing interventions. Right. And I popularized guess, in, in culture, right? And, yeah, I and, heard recently from a client that there's actually a TV show about it 
I've never seen it, okay. and I'm very thankful of that. <laughs> um, but doing the family interventions are so – I have never talked to a client who's gone through a family intervention where they get wolf-packed by people who love them and mean well. That's the thing that keeping both sides of the conversation honest – the loved ones do love this person and do want better for them, and they don't necessarily have the language, and they're frustrated, and they're overwhelmed, and they, I just want you to live. Why don't you care as much about me as I do about you? Statements like that. And then you've got the client saying, I'm struggling with this, this, and this, and I can't see past this pain. It would be it would be like wearing lar for client inactive addiction, especially someone with trauma. It would be like wearing comically large sunglasses and just thinking you can peer around the lenses. Everywhere you're looking, you're looking through the lens of how do I make the pain stop. So if I'm talking to family members, which I do on many occasions, it's how do you provide realistic support for your loved one what does keeping them safe look like and some family members absolutely will not have their family member come back home for right. any number of reasons and that is a perfectly acceptable answer and i've never ever gotten down on a family member for saying yes because it is hard to take custody of this adult child who's struggling with this and what i always encourage the family members to do is if you're telling the detox counselor we don't want joe to come home to our home you need to make that explicitly clear early in the recovery instead of late in the recovery because if joe is planning to go home and Joe's been inside for 28, 30, 35 days, and he's just excited to sleep in his own bed, and he's excited to pet the dog, and all these normalizing activities. And then I get a call three hours before discharge saying, Mom decided she doesn't want Joe to come home. Mm. That's not only can the client not discharge tonight, which, if we've already put it through insurance, can be that can be a whole thing. Right. Now we have to scramble to find a place for them to stay. And there is sober living houses. There are sober living houses in western New York. They're called Oxford houses. And what they are is it's a community of people in recovery. And they hold each other accountable, and there are certain expectations. And it increases the likelihood of someone sustaining sobriety. And it's a wonderful mechanism to have access to if the client, if the patient is working towards that as a goal. If they're working towards that as a goal, that's great. But if they're working towards going home to Mittens the dog and, you know, their five-year-old who just lost their first tooth, and I got to be the one to tell the person the night before or the day of, you can't go home. That's where we see the highest, highest chance of people 
I'm struggling again. Um, this time of year from Thanksgiving until I would say Valentine's Day is extraordinarily hard for people who are trying to quit substances. Why? It's emotion after emotion after emotion. Uh, Thanksgiving is fraught with all sorts of conversations with all sorts of family members that maybe you haven't seen in a year or two. So in this era of, we'll say, political tumult, if you have people who are on different sides of the political spectrum, that can be a trigger to use. If I'm dreading going to Uncle Ralph's house, and it's because Uncle Ralph does this with this organization and I represent this with this organization, I'm going to figure out a way to not go. Or when I do go, I'm going to be escalated the entire time. One of the things about anxiety, when our anxiety gets high and our heart is racing and our eyes are just fixating or spinning around on some lots of issues, that anxiety, that heightened sense of awareness is thoroughly physically exhausting for individuals. And when they come out of that panic attack, it's really, they're just tired. And when you're tired, the coping skills become less available because they can't see the coping skills, which is why we practice them again and again and again. Because I would rather you tell me that I am tired of practicing square breathing than me seeing your name in the obituary. Our guest of this morning on What's Next, Wayne Brown of Willow Grove Counseling. We had Wayne on actually uh, not too long ago, but we're getting into a, a conversation today where we're somewhat merging the idea of uh, New Year's resolutions with the idea of substance abuse and perhaps um, moving beyond substance abuse as well. You talked a little bit about how families, what, how families can work perhaps to help make a safer situation for someone in their family who is a, uh, a substance, uh, who has a substance abuse issue. Um, what are what are some of those things that a family can do? The number one thing is know who the counselor is. Get a release of information. From, and this becomes tricky because sometimes family members can – all family members come with their own stuff, right? Sure, sure. So maybe I get a call – from Jane Jones saying she wants to meet with John who's in recovery. Or John says he wants to talk to his mother Jane. The only way for me to facilitate this conversation is for John to sign off on a release of information to Jane. If John says no, then I have to go back to mom and say, I'm sorry, I cannot actually acknowledge whether or not I know this person. Oh, wow. Okay. Because for me to say, I'm sorry, John doesn't want to talk to you, is a violation of his HIPAA confidentiality because I just acknowledge he's in recovery. Now, sometimes John wants to talk to mom, 
and I already have the release, and mom says, lose my number. So when those happen, that's number one working with safety. It's working with the client to manage emotions rather than the emotions managing them. Uh, We'll do a lot of talk interventions, a lot of visualization exercises, and the client does not leave the room until the counselor has as much confidence as possible that the client can sustain themselves until their next session, until their next appointment. So to answer your question, how do I work with the family members? It can be an extraordinarily tricky situation, especially around the holidays, because around the holidays, everyone's emotions are the most revved up. Mm. And preparing for those emotions, preparing the family member to have conversations that they've actively been working to avoid, sometimes you got to tell mom, look, I know you're mad that John doesn't have a job, but this is... His taking a job right now is actually not clinically recommended. We would rather see him doing uh, community action. We would rather see him going to some sort of a group that offers community support. We would like to see them talking with peers about ways that they can manage the cravings. Because cravings will happen the body grows to depend on the substance. And the body is very dependent on uh, opiates. So it can be it can be three to six months before someone has begun to manage that craving with opiates. Uh, as far as the diagnostic, if you receive a diagnosis of alcohol use disorder or Uh, narcotic use disorder and narcotic use disorder would be the one in line with the substance the person is using. No one is allowed to go from active use to recovery until they've been sober or not using or not reporting using for at least 12 months. Wow. Because recovery is extremely challenging. Hmm. And over the course of my career, I've seen people, I'll tell you what I think the biggest risk for relapse is, Hmm. overconfidence. Hmm. Clients who have that distance from from active use and maybe they're relying on meetings and maybe they're relying on sober supports and something happens where after 10 years, maybe they have an argument with someone inside their community support group or they have the opportunity to move and they're like, I don't want to deal with meeting a new sober support group. Uh, They, they are going to have challenges. And if the challenges aren't supported and the individual can say, I've been sober 
for two, three, five, ten years. I know what I'm doing. That scares me more than anything. As far as long-term recovery, as far as short-term, there are many, many other concerns. But with long-term sobriety, the danger is comfortability, contempt for the diagnosis. That's why so many people who are in recovery will always say they're in recovery because the second they say, I'm cured, Mm. that's when they are more willing to take chances. You know what? It's the holiday party. My friends and I are going to Joe's Tavern. I can just have a seltzer. And the problem is Joe's Joe's Tavern is an old place that maybe the bartender doesn't wash the floors every night. And so you walk into Joe's and it smells a little like stale beer or stale booze. And there's only so long that a person can smell that and not feel the it's it's like the old potato chip commercial bet you can't eat just right right yeah if i were to have a uh, container of potato chips on the table we might look at it and be like whatever but if you open it up and say it's one in the afternoon and i grab one chip and then go on to the interview what am i going to be thinking about when, you know, when are we going to go to break so I could t- eat a potato chip? Should I, should I have Charles get us some chips? Or, <laughs> <right now? laughs> it, it's, you know, it's, it's the visualization. The more the person has the vis- visualization in their head, the more it becomes disconcerting. So I must, you must have heard stories. Oh, you know stories, of course, of people who relapse. That's... I, I can only assume that's it's, <laughs> considerably it, common. It's literally part of the practice right. in detox. Uh, how about, though, the stories of, and I'm sure they're both very satisfying for you, but also tremendously frightening, the person who has been able to you know, move beyond substance abuse and they run into situations and... The triggers are there, and they find their ways through these danger zones. What is that like? The triggers are the triggers are easy to get through. Um, while I can't tell you really anything specific to an inpatient scenario, I will tell you that for myself personally, um, when I was working at this facility. When I was informed that Joe Smith was coming back, there would be a gigantic sigh of relief. Hmm. Because while I wish Joe Smith was out there still leading his sober life, he made it back. And not everyone makes it back. And that's just a cold, hard fact. Not everyone who picks up again is going to make it back in the building. 
Not exactly a happy holidays talk, but um, most certainly the kind of talk that we wanted to have here today with Wayne Brown from Willow Grove Counseling here on What's Next. Wayne, before we went on the air, you mentioned uh, I most certainly am familiar with inpatient uh, rehab, um, uh, recovery, but you also mentioned something about, a, I guess I'll, I'll paraphrase it, an intense outpatient. Correct. Intensive outpatient program. Intensive outpatient program. I can't say I'm familiar with this. So Elaborate, please. With, if you're working with an agency or your family member is working with an agency, this is something that you can inquire about. Uh, if they're if they have a detox facility, if the detox offers this intensive outpatient, and what it is is usually five to six days a week, multiple hours per day. And there is group therapy. There is individual therapy. There is all sorts of engagement activities, and it's really meant to be far more intensive, far more rigorous in helping an individual who cannot do it on their own, who maybe has tried unsuccessfully many times. And it's going to be drugs, it's going to be alcohol, it's going to be other substances. Uh, there's a great deal of substance use in Western New York that is based on household products. And unfortunately, I'm sure you've talked about Narcan in here. Narcan only works with opiates. So someone who overdoses on these other substances while using the Narcan is wonderful, and I'm so happy we have it. All it will do is reveal the other substances people are on. Hmm. But yeah, there are all sorts of household substances that that people can use to indulge. If you want to go all the way back to, I'm sure you remember the TV show Family Ties. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Hanks had a scene on there where he was the uncle in early, early recovery. And uh, the son, Alex Keaton, discovers him drinking an entire bottle of uh, vanilla extract. Ah, uh, right. Mm-hmm. If you've got family members in early addiction or early recovery, the best thing that I would recommend is, and I should have mentioned this earlier, talk with your family members when they're sober, when they're in a good space, when they're recovering well, when you have a positive relationship. Don't push them when they're not ready to talk. But you want to ask your family member, are you willing to show me all your hiding spots? Wow. Because there is not a family member alive that will be able to find as many hiding spots as someone who's trying to hide their addiction. Mm. And people who are managing their substance use get extraordinarily creative. Wow. It says a lot about <laughs> what is going on inside. <laughs> but a, a this person. is also why on my uh, change action sheet that I use with clients trying to make um, make changes, and if you want, I can actually email it to you and you can include it in this project. Uh, the first 
free questions have nothing to do with what they hope to change. It's all about what they hope to gain. Okay. All right. So it's, you know, and in there we, in the forum, I ask individuals, where are your risks? You know, recovery change comes with risk, whether it's trying to you know, lose weight and the family wants to go to the buffet because that's our Christmas Eve tradition or New Year's Eve tradition. That's absolutely something that needs to be planned for. Or like I've had, uh, there, there are clients who will need to manage where they go to school, manage uh, where they go to work because something about their work or their school is advancing their desire to use. Not every job is forever. And there are individuals who are so scared of losing their job that they're willing to walk into the lion's den every day just for the paycheck, even though it might be making their sobriety extraordinarily tricky. Mm. It's, and unfortunately, even people who go into prison, going into prison does not stop someone picking up. Right, right. As we're, you're talking here, and we've had these conversations also recently with counselors, how do counselors take care of counselors? And as you're talking about some of this heavy, very heavy uh, discussion. How do you, how do you sort through it? It's the holidays for you too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very big on having ways to manage your emotions, uh, ways to check down on the difficulties of our job. We do hard work. We meet, we meet people where they're at. So in meeting people where they're at, sometimes you go home and you're not at your best. For me personally, it's my family. I go home and you know, I'm with my kids, I'm with my spouse, and there's nowhere I'd rather be. There's not the pull that I'm lacking something. I'm fortunate there. I am extremely fortunate, and I every day am thankful for what I have. Are you able to compartmentalize, though, from some of these very, very, very <laughs> intense conversations? <clears throat> there are times where I have taken detours home. Mm -hmm. um, when I was an intern, I had one of my clients tell me an extraordinarily personal piece of information that I was like crying the entire way home, driving home from the end of my shaft. Because these are people, and these are people who you know and you like and are really sometimes victims of awful circumstance. And yeah, there are times where I'll be extraordinarily emotional before I pick up my kids. And on those days, I sit in the car for a few minutes because I'm not going to go and tell my kids, yeah, I was just talking with a client who told me A, B, and C horror mm, story. Right. Number one, it's illegal. Right, Number right. two, I don't need 
to have my kids traumatized by secondary trauma. And this is one thing that I would add in with family members, because I do do a lot of family work. I do family sessions. I do uh, uh, group therapy on productive, protective families, productive families. Um, you, as much as you might, as the family member, want to take it personally if your loved one says something negative, as much as you might want to rage out at them because they said something that gave you a deep and strong emotional experience, I would caution you to remember it's not about you in that moment. And we've all had experiences where we're struggling with something hard and rather than be in that hard, will redirect. So is it possible that the family member does have this rage against their parent? Absolutely. Um, not every adult child is going to maintain communication with family. And this is one of those things that therapists argue about because therapists love to wax philosophic sometimes. Okay. <laughs> um, whether or not it is important to do forgiveness work with clients and whether or not a client can feel better by feeling forgiveness towards a person that hurt them. And I kind of fall down on the other side of the line of many of my peers. I'm not anti-forgiveness, obviously. Right. But if the client who I'm working with is going to feel worse by offering a hollow forgiveness in pursuit of not picking up again versus doing the work of letting go of that individual. You know, being a parent is hard work. And not every parent is the best parent. So... Some of our clients come from parents who really struggled to provide meaningful affection, meaningful care, a safe home, a well-fed home, maybe a home at all. And the adult child carries this resentment. Not everyone is going to benefit from forgiving that adult. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just say, they did the best they can, and I'm just going to release them from my brain, which takes a whole lot of work. Right. But it's less complicated than forgiving someone you're not willing to forgive. Coming down to our final couple of minutes here, uh, Wayne Brown, and you know, the, the topic, resolutions, but we've, uh, we've uh, really taken it, I think, into a – Really interesting and very obviously very serious uh, side of things here. At the same time, resolutions don't have to be on New Year's. So whenever this particular program is being heard, uh, maybe it's time for someone to start resolutions, whatever it is. Weight, change of habits, and in some cases maybe even looking to uh, get some help when it comes to uh, substance abuse yeah. or some sort of a harmful activity. But uh, general thoughts about resolutions and how people, like you said, 
earlier, our, we started off the conversation finding out about your why. Mm-hmm. How, how should how can people just have a couple of thoughts about working their way through this process? Well, you're right that I I'm dealing with making changes all year long. One of the things that I'm very deliberate in doing, if a client says, I want to make a change, I want to alter this behavior, I find this interfering in my quality of life. The first thing I will do across the board is get very excited for them. Oh. I will be like, okay, that is great. I am so glad that this is something we're going to work on. If you don't mind, I'm going to get this sheet and we'll work on it together if that's okay. And it's rare that someone says, no, just give me the sheet and I'll do it at home. <laughs> I'll do it at home. I'll take it home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I'm talking with them, I am excited for them. I am working with them. The first set of goals that we work on are from right now until seven days from now. Okay. What can we do today? What are the small things that you can do right after you leave my office that's going to make you feel a little bit better? And if someone is coming to see me who regularly goes to McDonald's after session and says, you know what? I'm going to skip McDonald's after session. I don't need that food item. Um and then that's, by all means, something that I'm going to celebrate. And I'll follow up with that and be like, that's great. I am so glad you're not going there. Where can we go instead? Because you're probably still going to be hungry. So maybe you have a healthy snack in your lunch bag or uh, stop at a farmer's market or what have you. What can we do to take care of the hunger and manage the cravings to eat so if you're looking for change first and foremost be excited about the concept and then try to lay out small victories along the way and it only works if it's the client's goal right if it's my goal that means nothing no one's ever given up drinking or drugs because the counselor said I think this would be good for you. Right. <laughs> I wish I had that much influence, but I do us, not. Everybody does, <laughs> of course. Well, uh, Wayne Brown, uh, again, great conversation. I really do appreciate uh, the, the fact there. Are you an optimist about your work? I love what I do. I, If I had the opportunity to do this over again, I would do it a thousand times out of a hundred. It is absolutely the greatest. I got an email over the weekend from a client's parent who told me something that exciting that happened in the client's life. And I, I was excited to respond. I was excited to say, that is so cool. And thank you for making this happen. Mm. And when... When you've got a team of family members or friends or people who care. Because remember, some people have family by birth and some people have family by choice. Right. And either way, if your family is supporting you, that's fantastic. And I will always acknowledge a family member who is going above and beyond to support their family member. 
Wayne Brown is from Willow Grove Counseling joining us today on What's Next again. Wayne, thanks for being with us. Thank you. This is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.